0: Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to your ancestors, you shall not kill, and whoever kills will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, you have heard that it was said to your ancestors Do not take a false oath, but make good to the Lord all that you vow. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more is from the evil one. The Gospel of the Lord. When I was in my final year in seminary in preparation for ordination we're all required to take a course a 3-hour semester a course called celebrational style and it's essentially learning how to offer the mass the sacraments of the church and all the other rituals that priests and deacons do and it's it's an intense a semester course because it's not just learning the mechanics of the rites, it's learning their reasons for being there, what they mean, and how they serve the worshiping assembly. So on the first day of class, the priest professor came in, and he held up this document called the General Instruction to the Roman Missal. The acronym is G-I-R-M. Sometimes people call it the germ. Not very glamorous. But it has all the rites and directives and rituals about how to say Mass. So just this document in itself, what is all entailed in celebrating the Eucharist. And he held it up and he said to us, Gentlemen, this is to protect the people from you. Meaning, the Mass is established and structured the way it is. It isn't the property of the priest, and he has no right to go tampering with it, changing texts where it's not allowed or reworking parts of it. Apparently, this professor thought that priests have enormous egos, (laughs) that somehow they think they could do that. But his point was the liturgy belongs to the church, and the way it's celebrated communicates what the church wants it to say. And to not celebrate it correctly is to not just misinform people, but one could actually be deviating from what the gospel intends and not even be aware of it. So he gave us the document, and he said, memorize it. You have two weeks. So then in two weeks, we came back. And that day, he got us all on a bus, took us downtown San Francisco to a Buddhist temple where we witnessed a Japanese tea ceremony. Now, if you ever saw that done, it's, it's mesmerizing. Every gesture, every movement is attended to with great adherence and reverence, the way the water is poured, the way the tea is added, the way it's stirred. And when you witness this, you realize you're a part of something that's bigger than yourself or this immediate gathering. It's something that's been handed down from generation to generation and is formative of those people. The point the professor was trying to make is that it is very possible to perform rituals diligently, obediently, carefully, and still make them beautiful experiences, because he didn't want us to look like robots, mechanically doing the right slavishly, but wanted us to perform them as an action that emerged out of thought. And reverence and the realization of how sacred it is that we're privileged to do that. I share that with you because you're aware that the bishops in this country have launched this initiative called Revitalizing the Eucharist, and that's going to be something we hear more about in the weeks ahead. It's an effort on our bishops' part to deepen our people's understanding of this sacrament, what it means and what it involves. And part of what it involves is understanding the structure of the rite and why it's important that it be observed. But there's another reason I share that. Because I think, maybe this is a stretch but I think we can draw some parallels between this understanding of ritual performative language and the moral code of the church, the morality that we hear Jesus unfolding in today's gospel. And he focuses just on two areas, anger and lust, and he begins by citing the law, what has been established. And he says, you, shall, you know the law that you shall not kill. Well, then he changes it. And he can do that because he has the authority. But he, he changes it in a way that he reinterprets it and then makes it fuller and richer and more beautiful in its observance by saying... Okay, you shall not kill, but I'm going to take it a step farther. Don't even get angry with your brother or sister. Because if you do, you start a slippery slope. It's the same thing that happens when people violate the rubrics and the rituals of the liturgy. It's a slippery slope. Because once you do that once, how far does it go? And the understanding here is that, for Jesus, murder is the ultimate result of anger. So don't give it an opening. Don't even start down that road. Martin Luther King Jr. used to say, you can kill a person without killing a person, meaning you don't immediately take their life, but you start the process by things like racial discrimination, derogatory language, inequality among the races, all of that breeds an anger that ultimately could lead to death, to murder. Then he looks at lust and again quotes the law, you shall not commit adultery. But then takes the law farther, enhances it. It says anyone who looks lustfully at another person has already committed adultery. Meaning that you've opened the door. By looking lustfully at another human being as though he or she were some object that existed for our pleasure, It's heading to that ultimate sin that we don't wanna go to, namely infidelity. But I do think we need to distinguish something here. Looking with lust is not the same thing as looking with admiration at another human being. We know that God made the human body as something beautiful. It's something that's to delight us, to fascinate us, to draw us to a deeper reverence. So by looking at another person and admiring the beauty that is there, that's praising God. That's not lust. Lust happens when we start fantasizing and finding ways to, again, make that other person some kind of property, object for us. And that leads to a place we don't want to go. But even in marriage, and you know this, a couple could be very faithful in their vows, live them strictly without any kind of unfaithful activity, And yet, it's possible that they're not beloved there. So even though the law is being observed, that kind of a relationship needs more than just rigid laws. It needs romance and passion and warmth. That's why we have Valentine's Day. So all of that is there to make obedience to these laws something that takes us to a deeper level of appreciation for those whom we love. Strict obedience isn't enough. A greater appreciation is. So I believe in these teachings that Jesus offers his disciples. There's that parallel with ritual behavior. Obedience is necessary, but not enough. And as Jesus himself said, he hasn't not Come To abolish law, he's come to fulfill it, to take it to a higher level so that we respect law for what it is, but also respect people for who they are. People who, yes, can be prone to sin because we are weak and broken, but also people who are capable of greatness because of grace and love. The great theologian Karl Rahner used to speak about the liturgy of the world. In other words, all of life is an act of worship that's not only done in a place of worship, like a church, but spills over into our life. And I think that's a a lovely metaphor, the liturgy of life, the liturgy of the world, where there can be good order that's followed. And human actions done carefully with intention and meaning and still be very edifying, beautiful, and inspirational. So that we come to realize that our life, our existence, is truly one act of worship, one divine liturgy that is foreshadowed on this earth and that will come to fulfillment in heaven.